in long-distance running, many speak about hitting the proverbial wall. Maybe you've hit that wall. It's the point in the race where you're depleted of your carbohydrate storage to such an extent that you just feel as if you cannot go any further. Sudden fatigue begins to set in. You lose energy. Your legs begin to feel like the pavement that they are pounding step after step. For those running a marathon, it usually comes around mile 20 of the 26.2 miles in the race. The months leading up to the marathon, runners are preparing their bodies to press through that wall and to make it to the finish. And what's incredible is how much focus goes into these races. Months leading up to the race, they're going on regular long runs. They're constantly trying to set a pace and hit the pace to keep the pace. They're learning how to set the pace and to map the course out as they go in their heads. Three to five days before, they're eating lots and lots of carbs, carb loading before the big race. And then comes the race. They're regularly checking their pace. They're fueling up with water. They're taking gel. They're trying to inhale carbohydrates throughout the race. They're trying to minimize distractions as much as possible. And yet when they hit that wall, mentally, they begin breaking the race up into smaller races within their mind in order to press on in that final six-mile stretch. And why? Why are they doing that? Why do you do that when you're running long distances? If you do that kind of thing, maybe you don't. But why do they do that? It's because the finish line, the tape, it's that tape that keeps them focused and motivated to endure the pain that comes once they've hit that wall. The opportunity to say that they completed a marathon, they can put a little 26.2 sticker on the back of their car in great pride. It's been said that running is 90% mental and the rest is physical. Now, you may disagree with that, those of you who do run. But ultimately, you get the point. Running long distances, in order to do that, you've got to be focused on the finished, and you've got to take the necessary steps in order to get there. In our text this morning from Hebrews 12, we see a similar principle. That as runners in this race of faith, what we focus on will determine whether or not we will finish the race. What we focus on is going to determine whether or not we're going to finish the race. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Hebrews, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 this morning. You can find it on page 1008 in the red seatback Bible there in front of you. As you're turning to Hebrews 12, I just want to give a word of appreciation for this church. This is actually going to be my final sermon as I've served on pastoral staff here uh, before we go, and we are sent out by you all to go plant a church up in Bentonville. And as Kristen and I moved here five and a half years ago, it has been one of the greatest joys of our life to get to serve you. We were excited for getting to come back to UBC we graduated from the U of A, were members here before we got 
sent out to go to seminary and then finally get to get to come back, we were looking forward to that opportunity. And it has not disappointed us. And so we are extremely grateful for you all. This is the place where I've grown as a pastor, where I've grown in preaching over the years. And one of the greatest joys is being able to watch your love for one another as you've sacrificed much in order to do that. Just this past week in our, uh, in our pastoral residency program, we were reflecting upon ways in which UBC has grown over the years. And thankfully, we've been here long enough to be able to get to see that. And one of the things that kept regularly coming up was how warm and loving that this church is. And brothers and sisters, we testify to that. We testify to your love and your care for us over the past five and a half years. It has been an absolute joy and one of the sweetest blessings of our lives. The author of Hebrews tells us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near. You have done that well. You've done that extremely well. And we are grateful for you. We love you. And we're going to continue to pray for you as we plant a church up north in Bentonville. And we would ask you to continue to pray for us as we seek to do that work. Well, let's read the text. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When well, our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews presents us with this image of runners in a race to depict the Christian life. And he does so to impress upon his readers the need to persevere in the faith. Notice the key phrase in the main exhortation right there at the end of verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Notice the main exhortation right there. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Essentially what he's saying is persevere to the end. Persevere to the end. That's the main exhortation. Everything else in this text is all giving support. It's giving the motivation and the means for enduring in this race. That's what it's doing. That's what the text is doing. And the big idea that the author is getting at in the text this morning, I think, is this. I think this is really the, the main idea that he's getting at. That the faith that finishes the race is a faith that's fixed on Jesus. The faith that finishes the race is a faith that's fixed on Jesus. I think that's the main idea that he's getting at. But the question is, well, how in the world do you do that? <laughs> how do you do that? How do you endure in the race to the end? Well, he gives us two primary ways this morning to do that in the text. Point number one, 
lay aside every obstacle to your faith. Point number one, lay aside every obstacle to your faith. And point number two, look to the object of your faith. Point number two, look to the object of your faith. Point number one, lay aside every obstacle to your faith. Up until chapter 12, the author of Hebrews has been building his argument for why Jesus is the best. He's pitting Jesus against the Old Testament religious system. Much of the author's audience in Hebrews have been suffering for their faith, and they were tempted to abandon the faith and go back to the religious practices of the Old Testament. And so to make his point, the author just takes on the entire religious system. You think angels and Moses were great servants of God? Guess what? Jesus is the Son of God. What about all those incredible prophets and priests? They all died. Jesus is the sinless, eternal high priest and prophet. Are you looking at those endless Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and goats at the temple to cleanse you from your sin? Jesus was a once-for-all-time sacrifice for sin, to pay for our sin forever. And on and on he goes, just building this theological argument for why Jesus is better because of who he is and what he's done. That's the point of the book. That's what he's doing. Only in Jesus can your sins be forgiven and you receive the hope of all of God's promises. So take your pick. Who are you going to trust and believe? The Old Testament religious system which will ultimately just condemn you? (laughs) Or are you going to choose Jesus? Which one will it be? But what exactly is faith? And what does it look like to trust in the Lord in triumph and in trials? Well, that's where the author turns in Hebrews chapter 11, where we see in verses 1 and 2 probably one of the clearest definitions of faith in the Bible. One of the clearest definitions of faith in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation. And in the rest of the chapter. In chapter 11, he just goes example by example by example of all of those who persevered in faith. That's what he's doing. And all of this leads up to our passage this morning, beginning with that word, therefore. Therefore. Right here, the author is making a climactic shift from the incredible examples of of persevering faith in chapter 11 to how that faith actually applies to us practically today in chapter 12. And he begins with an incredible picture. He says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Well, not only is the Christian life just depicted as a race, but there's also this cloud of witnesses surrounding us in this race. And with that metaphor, the author has in mind this stadium of just rows upon rows, of section upon section, of all of these cloud of people 
surrounding us as runners in this race. And these people aren't passive spectators. They're not just kind of up there clapping, saying, you go. That's not what they're doing. What does it say in the text? The author calls them witnesses. A witness is one who testifies. And who are these witnesses? Well, it's everyone that the author has just told us about in Hebrews 11. It's Abel. It's Enoch. It's Noah. It's Abraham. It's Sarah. It's Isaac. It's Jacob. It's Joseph. It's Moses. It's Rahab. And so on and so forth. There are so many witnesses that the author doesn't even have enough time to be able to go into them all. That's what he's getting at in chapter 11, verse 32, if you look right there. In what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Any who have run this race and persevered in the faith serve as examples. Their lives serve as examples for us. And these witnesses, they are testifying by their very lives what endurance in the faith in the face of suffering looks like. They're testifying that God is faithful to keep his promises. We finished the race. We've seen it. God is faithful to keep his promises. And they're encouraging us to keep going, to keep persevering, to keep running the race. And so you can imagine, when the author of Hebrews is telling this to his audience, how encouraging that this would have been to them. More than likely, the author, whom we don't know, was writing to a largely Jewish Christian audience, tempted to fall back into their old religious ways. And yet, to be able to look up and see Moses and Abraham and Sarah, all these massive figures of the faith, would have been a great encouragement to them, those who had persevered in the faith to the end. It would have encouraged them to persevere as well. And I think it encourages us in a couple of ways. The first, I think, is this. I think it reminds us that we're not alone. We are not alone. Often when we face persecution and suffering, we can be tempted to believe that we're just the only ones going through it. Our situation is unique to us. Nobody else understands what I'm going through. We can be tempted to think that. But the author of Hebrews is actually telling us something different. He's saying, you're not alone. In fact, there are thousands of years worth of brothers and sisters in the faith who've gone through the same thing as you, and often quite worse. I mean, just go look back at chapter 11 and read about some of the suffering that went on among these brothers and sisters of the faith. Junior high and high school students, when you make the hard decision to not follow the in crowd into sin, as tempting as that often is, to want to fit in, to want to be a part of the in crowd, when you make that decision to not follow the in crowd, but to decide to fear the Lord and honor Him, and then you're treated like an outcast for it, remember that you're not alone. The author of Hebrews says, look around you Look into the stands. Do you see all of these witnesses whenever you're shamed for not following the in crowd? 
Do you see these witnesses? Do you see Moses and Abraham? Do you see Noah, outcast of outcast, who built a massive boat to save his family at the command of God, and yet people were probably around telling him his head was in the sand? He knows what it's like to not be a part of the in crowd. Do you see Sarah, section 50, row 4, seat 5? Do you see Rahab? Do you see Gideon and Jephthah? Do you see Jacob and Joseph? Do you see them all? This stadium is packed full of witnesses. All to remind you that you're not alone. You're not alone. You got to keep persevering in the faith. Brothers, we're not alone. Brothers and sisters, we are not alone. If you're facing crippling anxiety or you're battling fear of a man that hinders you from sharing Christ with your coworker, remember that you're not alone. Be encouraged that living by faith is going to cost you something just like it did those saints of old. You're not in this alone. You've got others who've run the race and those who are running the race with you. Well, not only does it encourage us knowing that we're not alone, but these witnesses also serve as examples to motivate us. They're motivators for us. Notice that word since or because at the beginning of verse 1. These witnesses are one of the reasons for running the race with endurance. They're one of the reasons for it. The author isn't giving these examples as just a history lesson. He's giving these examples as an object lesson in what it looks like to persevere in the face of suffering to the end. They're an object lesson for us when times get hard. In fact, that's what the word endurance is getting at in verse 1. It speaks to the capacity to continue when times get difficult. That's what endurance is getting at. This is not a light jog around the neighborhood. This is, a, this is not a sprint. This race is not easy. It's long. It's a marathon. And we don't run a marathon like a 50-yard dash. Just imagine beginning a marathon in a dead sprint. Okay, You sign up for the next marathon. You go out there. As soon as the gun shoots off, you're in a dead sprint. And what's everybody else thinking behind you? Must be the first marathon. As they kind of just, you know, set their pace. Must be their first marathon. You wouldn't do that. Because they know, all of those runners behind you setting the pace, they all know here pretty soon. Those lungs are going to start to give out. Blisters are going to form on your feet. Your mouth is going to feel like cotton and your legs like jello. And you are either going to collapse or give out in this race. You will eventually tap out. Now, sadly, this was the case for many during the author's day. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, that many had seen signs and wonders and various miracles of God. But when difficulty came, some began to look back to their old religious practices. And they neglected their salvation. They started in a dead sprint. 
They looked great, but they didn't finish. They didn't finish well. They got gassed halfway through. And so he's pointing this cloud of witnesses as examples for persevering faith to motivate us to finish the race in the face of adversity. And now I'll be honest with you, I don't normally wake up in the morning when I'm facing difficulty and think about the faith of Abraham and Sarah. I'm not normally like that. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to that. But if we don't consider the faith of others, we're missing an incredible opportunity for growth in godliness and joy in Christ. We're missing an incredible opportunity. And one, of the, one area right here that I think can help us is really in the reading of Christian biography. Christian biography helps us to learn from the past, to make sense of the present, so that we will make progress toward the future. That's what it does. And so I think we would be helped by picking up biographies of those who've gone before us. It reminds us that God just didn't clock in for work in our generation, but he's been at work since eternity past. He's been doing this a long time. This is not new for him. There's great utility in reading Christian biography. And when we look at our context from Hebrews 11, one thing that stands out is how Christian biography teaches us to suffer well. Consider the life of John Bunyan, the famous author of Pilgrim's Progress who had suffered 12 long years of imprisonment for preaching the gospel, and he's imprisoned away from his family. <laughs> away from his family, 12 years. And he can say later in his life, after that kind of suffering that he went through, he can say things like this. God, can make those things that in themselves are most fearful and terrible to behold the most pleasant, delightful, and desirable things. He can make a jail more beautiful than a palace, restraint more sweet by far than liberty or freedom, and the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt." Bunyan understood what it meant to persevere in the faith. His life is a picture of confident trust in God when times got hard. Of how God can turn even the hardest things, most difficult things, in the most, into the most desirable things, into the sweetest of things. But he wouldn't experience that if he had not endured through that suffering. If you're looking for a great place to start in reading biographies. I think one great place to start is John Piper's 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. It's great because those biographies are short, easy reads. 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. I'd commend that to you. If you want to dive into something a little bit deeper, a little meatier, pick up To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson on the life of missionary Adoniram Judson. My word, you want to talk about a guy who suffered greatly for the gospel. Read that biography. And just be encouraged to continue on with where the Lord has you. Pick up Elizabeth Elliot's Through the Gates of Splendor. All of those are great options. Start somewhere, but begin reading Christian biography. By reflecting on the past saints, on the faith of past saints, it helps us to guard us 
from what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, where we begin to look at the past as somehow inferior because it's not as advanced as we are today. But it guards us against that. And the author of Hebrews actually says it's the exact opposite. The past serves to motivate us to persevere in the present in order to prepare us for the future. These saints serve as motivational history for how to endure suffering by faith. So if these servants, these witnesses, serve to motivate us, then what are the means for which we're going to be able to endure to the end? What are those means? Well, notice the first way that the author encourages us to endure. He says in verse 1 right there, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. When runners in the Greco-Roman world would prepare for a race, they would try to get rid of everything that would weigh them down. So that would include shedding pounds. That also would include shedding their clothes. Oftentimes, runners would run naked so as to have nothing to hinder them in that race in order to win it. Some runners would run naked. No matter what it was, they, wouldn't, they did not want anything to hinder them from completing the race. And by using those words weight and sin together right there in the verse, the author has in mind anything that could keep us from persevering in the faith, whether that be sin or other things that are not even necessarily bad but can actually trip you up and cause you to stumble, obstacles to keep you from finishing the race. So what are those things What are those things in your life right now that are hindering you from running the race with endurance? Might it be a career, the desire to achieve more so that it causes your spiritual health and your family life to suffer? It hinders your ability to be able to give to the church by serving and loving others and caring for others. Could it be your career? Remember that that word weight right there doesn't necessarily have to be something that's bad. A career is not bad in and of itself, but it can become bad. Is it morality or religion like the original hearers? Is it a relationship? Is it your family that can get in the way of running the race? Is it a hobby? Is it the treasures of Egypt and the things that this world has to offer you? that keeps you from running the race. These things are not inherently bad, but they can serve as obstacles from finishing the race. What besetting sins right now are clinging to you? They have grasped your foot, and you are limping in that race right now. They're trying to hold you back. What are those besetting sins in your life? You think of those from Galatians 5. Anxiety, pride, slothfulness, greed, envy, anger, sexual immorality, strife, lack of self-control, doubt. That's really what the author of Hebrews is writing into. Those who are lacking in faith, he doesn't want them to doubt, but to look and trust the Lord and look to him. Laying these aside is not easy. That's why he says that they cling so closely. They can latch onto you and keep you from finishing. 
So how do you lay that aside? How do we lay that aside? How do we lay the sin and the weight aside? Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, I think we need to identify it. You need to know (laughs) that there is something that is hindering you from running the race, something that is pulling you back. There is an obstacle in your way, and you've got to identify it. You need to know that it's there. And this is one of the blessings of being able to be in a church is that you've got all of these people around you right here that can help you to identify that obstacle. And so who for you in this congregation right now is someone that you trust that can identify that obstacle for you in love? Now understand, I'm not talking about someone who can just identify an obstacle. There are plenty of people who can identify stuff that's messed up in our lives. But who is someone for you who can identify an obstacle in love and help to show you that it's hindering you? We need others at certain mile markers of the rate of the race, holding up signs. You've got eight miles left. You've got to keep going. They've got gel packs and water and carb packs or whatever. They're right there wanting to help us, to encourage us, to keep going and persevering. That's all of us right here. That's all of us right here. And we can look around. There is a gallery of people that are ready to help. Who is that going to be for you? Secondly, we need to pray humbly that the Lord would open our eyes to our sin. Maybe you don't pray that. Pray humbly before God that he would give you sight to identify your sin. To open your eyes to what's obstructing your path. Talk to God. Ask for the Spirit's help to convict you, to conform your desires to his will. Next, ask questions. Ask yourself questions in order to get to the root of the matter. Ask yourself, is blank hindering my relationship with the Lord? Is it hindering my relationship with the Lord? Those things that aren't necessarily bad, are they hindering it? What do you fear? What do you want? What do you wish that you have or that you don't have or wish that you didn't have? What do you wish that you could keep? These are all questions to ask. In what ways am I trying to be the God of my life? All helpful questions to ask yourself. And then lastly, what's one truth about the Lord that you need to remind yourself about that is really a counter to that thing that is obstructing your path? What is one truth about the Lord that you need to remind yourself of this morning? If we don't lay aside every obstacle to this race, look at the alternative right here. Later in chapter 12, the author exhorts us by referring to the Exodus generation in verse 25. And he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, the Exodus generation, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. If those warned by God on earth rejected his word and they were judged, how much more if we reject the word of Christ from heaven? will we be judged? The mediator of a better covenant. The writer reminds us that God is a consuming 
fire. This is a holy God. And yet we've got to keep running the race, laying aside everything that will hinder us from finishing and receiving the reward. All of the saints of chapter 11 had to lay aside something in order to be able to run the race with endurance to receive the reward, and so must we. And the primary way that we do that, by, by laying aside every weight in sin and enduring in this race, is by looking to someone else. It's by looking to someone else. Point number two, look to the object of your faith. Point number two, look to the object of your faith. Verse two begins with the author giving us the second way we run the race with endurance. He says, looking to Jesus. What's noticeable here is that the author, contrary to popular opinion, doesn't give us just a step, a 12-step plan for running a race. I can go online, about to run a marathon, they're going to give me a 12-step plan for how to prepare for that marathon. The author doesn't do that. Rather than a plan, he gives us a person. And again, contrary to popular opinion, that person is not us. <laughs> it's not us. Within our culture, so much of life focuses on us in individualism. This individualism, it's a race that often our culture will run, the race of individualism. And we will run it and finish the race. This is what it says. You will finish the race if you stay true to yourself, if you follow your heart. You'll finish the race when you find yourself. And when that happens, then we will be truly running the race with endurance and finish the race toward self-exaltation and self-fulfillment. But the scriptures actually say that that actually disqualifies you. And that's what forfeiting the race looks like. That's what the author right here is telling us. Matter of fact, he's saying you're running the wrong race. That race is not going to make it to the end. Its end is destruction. Your eyes are on the wrong prize. Rather than looking inside yourself to run the race, you need to look out and you need to look up. And don't just take a glance, but literally, that looking is fixing your eyes on Jesus. It's a set gaze upon him. But why? We'll read the next verse, or read the next phrase right there in the verse. Because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And what this means is that Jesus is the supreme example of faith. He initiates and he completes or perfects the faith of believers. We see this similar language in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, where Jesus is called the founder of our salvation. The one who founded our faith will complete our faith as the supreme example of our faith. So take your pick. Would you rather look inside yourself, who has to set aside sin just in order to run this race, or rather look to the one who is without sin, who already ran the race in one for you? He's already received the reward at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a no-brainer. Which guy are you taking? I'm taking Jesus every time. And what the author is doing right here is setting apart Jesus as the supreme example from everyone else. As great as that cloud of witnesses is from Hebrews 11, Jesus is not just another hero 
in a long line of heroes of the faith. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The one the cloud of witnesses were looking to as the fulfillment of all God's promises. He's the one that they were looking to. Their lives serve as examples for us of how to endure the race by looking to Jesus, to set your gaze upon him. He is the object of our faith. He is the focus and the aim of our faith, the goal of our faith, the one that our faith is set upon. It's him. But why? Why is he the supreme example? How is he fundamentally different from all of these cloud of witnesses? Well, it's not only because of who he is, it's also because of what he's done. Look at the second half of verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cloud of witnesses faced obstacles to their faith. We will face obstacles. And Jesus faced obstacles as well. What did he face? He faced the cross and he faced its shame. The cross was a physically excruciating way to die. Even more than that, it was more excruciatingly uh, painful way to die spiritually. It was the place of judgment, the wrath that was laid upon Christ to pay for sin. This was spiritually excruciating. It was also a shameful way to die, and it was despised by citizens throughout the Roman Empire. And yet, what did Jesus do whenever he looked at this shame, and he saw this shame, and this instrument of shame? What did he do? He despised its shame. Jesus didn't bother avoiding the pain of the cross and the shame that it brought to his reputation as one despised, as a criminal on this cross. He didn't bother with that. He didn't bother thinking about that at all because he considered the shame of the cross as nothing compared to the joy that's set before him. He didn't shrink back from that cross, but he endured it in all the shame that it brought. The shame of the cross didn't have the final word. Christ had that final word. It is finished. The rest of the result of humiliation, what was the result of that cross? It was exaltation. It was a throne of wood. And look at his reward. He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase right there is an allusion to Psalm 110.1, which is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. And it's a favorite, really, of the author of Hebrews, quoting it repetitively throughout the book. And David right there in that psalm is speaking prophetically of the Messiah who is going to sit on his throne as God's king. And in Hebrews, when that, when that verse is used, Jesus is sitting at the right hand. That's associated with his place of work in his priestly work to atone for sin. The author is merging these two images. He is the Davidic king, and he is also the priest who atones for sin. And he is merging these two images to show us that Jesus is the priest king who triumphs gloriously and victoriously 
at the seat of power as the bridge between God and man by being the once for all time sacrifice for our sin. Brothers and sisters, we don't look inside ourselves to run this race with endurance. We don't finally look to the faith of others at the end of the day. We don't look to our religious system. We don't even look to our past faithfulness to keep running this race. Looking elsewhere is going to forfeit the race for us. Instead, we look to the only one who is worthy to look at. The one who has already run the race, who has won and fully received the reward. We can look to him because he is the sacrifice for our sin and he now reigns victoriously having received the reward. Like a photographer who needs to recalibrate the focus on his lens, we need to recalibrate the focus of our faith. So are you living in unrepentant sin? Turn from your sin and look to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're going to have a time of confessing our sins. Use that time to look to Jesus as the high priest who atoned for your sin. Are you distracted and anxious with work? hard family dynamics, the, heart, the health of your children. Look to Jesus, who is peace beyond all understanding. Are you in pain or still grieving the loss of a spouse, a child, a family member, or a friend? Look to Jesus, through whom God comforts you with his own comfort. Look to Christ in your affliction. In long-distance running, Coaches often tell their runners to draft off the runners in front of them. Doing so actually allows the runner to conserve energy by using the wake of runners in front of them to pull them along. However, the opposite of drafting in running is dragging, where runners change lanes and they begin to experience the thrust of the wind against their body, hindering them from being able to move forward. Friend, I wonder if this morning, are you drafting off of Jesus' wake of victory, or are you dragging from all of the obstacles that are keeping you and hindering you from running this race? You don't have to drag anymore. Many say that life's a drag, but you don't have to drag anymore. You can lay aside all obstacles that keep you from running the race, and you can look to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of faith, you can begin to experience that light draft, his easy yoke and his light burden today, right now. You can experience what it looks like and what it feels like to run in the wake of his victory. Turn from your sin, look to him in faith, and finish the race that is set before you and receive the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Your burdens can be made light today. Brothers and sisters, there's one final motivation to endure in this race, in this text. It says in verse 2, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What's the joy set before Jesus right there? Is it his position at God's, at the Father's right hand? That might be probably part of it. But more importantly, it's the joy of what his atoning death would accomplish for us. The forgiveness of our sins in life with him in heaven before the throne of God. 
Jesus prays in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me. His death accomplished your forgiveness. That's the joy set before him in order to have you for himself with him before the Father. Beyond the cross, Jesus knew something better was in store. What motivated him to endure suffering in the faith was what his death would accomplish. He serves as the supreme example of what persevering faith looks like. And this motivates us to persevere in the faith because our reward is great in heaven. Because at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That is what is in store for us. As the founder and perfecter of our faith, he will bring it to completion on that final day. Our hope does not lie in our own strength to make it to the end, but in the faith of another who has already received that reward and secured it for you. Brothers and sisters, this ought to motivate us because we know where this race is headed. Greater than the suffering we will face in this life is the joy that is set before us in glory with Christ. We can be motivated by Christ's example because Christ has already borne on himself our greatest weight in sin. It's done. He has accomplished it. Everything else is but a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that we will receive at his appearing. We look to our heavenly reward by considering the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures that anything in this life can offer us right now. No amount of suffering is going to take that reward away from you. No obstacle can do it. Endure in the faith. On January 6, 1850, a 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon entered a primitive Methodist chapel in Colchester, England, due to a snowstorm. As Spurgeon took his seat, a lay preacher took to the pulpit. And as he was preaching, he locked his eyes on the young Spurgeon, and he said to him personally, Young man, you look very miserable. Look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. And Spurgeon records, Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. And though this is speaking about Spurgeon's conversion, the same exhortation holds true whether you are just now beginning the race or you're nearing the end. Look to Christ. Look to him who for the joy set before him endured the cross for you. Because a faith that finishes the race is a faith that is fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you that though we are running this race right now, we have the one who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, enabling us by his spirit to keep running this race to the very end. Father, we give praise to you for that. Lord, we ask that you would help us to lay aside every weight and sin which can cling so closely and cause us to forfeit this race. Lord, we pray that us as a church, Lord, that we would seek to help one another in this race, that this is not an individual sport, but this is a team effort. Lord, help us 
to come alongside one another in running this race so that we might behold and experience that joy that is before your throne, the joy of glory and pleasure forevermore in Christ. Lord, keep us faithful to the end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.